Thanks for listening to this edition of the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, an editor at First Word Pharma Plus, and joining me today are my colleagues Michael Flanagan and Tina Tan. On this week's show, we discuss a number of topics, including more controversy for AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine, a setback in the field of drug development for Huntington's disease, some important cancer immunotherapy updates, and look at Amazon's plan to expand its role as a healthcare provider in the US. So AstraZeneca has had um, a complete roller coaster of a week this week. Um, on Monday, they appeared to have played um, a trump card in their bid to cement the status of their vaccine for COVID-19 as a key component of the global response to the pandemic. Um, they released some pre-specified interim results from a, a much-anticipated phase two study in the U.S., Um, demonstrating efficacy of 79% in preventing symptomatic COVID-19. And in patients aged 65 and over, they demonstrated an efficacy rate of 80% and a rate rate of 100% efficacy at preventing severe disease and hospitalization. It was just literally a matter of hours later, however, when the, um, the US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases who were helping to fund the study, issued a statement um, relating to concerns that have been raised by the Independent Data and Safety Monitoring Board, who've been overseeing the study, about the completeness of the data, and the suggestion being that AstraZeneca had potentially included outdated information when disclosing the results in its press release. And then subsequently to that, um, late yesterday, I believe, um, or early early to very, very early today, UK time, I'm not sure, but AstraZeneca released further results from a primary analysis of the same study showing that the vaccine demonstrated efficacy of 76% at preventing symptomatic COVID-19 and actually also showed that the efficacy in patients aged 65 and older went up from 80% to 85%, and the vaccine continued to demonstrate 100% efficacy at preventing severe or critical disease or hospitalization. So a strange kind of turn of events, um, in, in kind of intriguing but frustrating at the same time. I mean, Michael, as someone based in the US, what what's your been been your kind of reaction to what's gone on this week? Well, <laughs> this is probably going to make me sound a little um, like a dumb American or lazy, perhaps. But basically, the you know all this news coming out about AstraZeneca and and the vaccine, um, I've been following it, and you know not closely, closely, but oh, relatively closely. And you know, it's is it effective? Is it not effective? Is there blood clot problems? Is there is there not? Um, sort of all these different things coming out where, while, you know, over here we have access to Moderna, we have access to Pfizer, and these and these vaccines seem to be remarkably effective and as far as we can tell, you know, clearly safe. I've sort of just been like, well, <laughs> if I have my choice, I'm probably just gonna take, you know, one of these ones that just doesn't have this 
whether it's reality or perception, it just doesn't have this cloud hanging over it. Um, and I think that's probably a lazy way to think about it, especially when you look at the data and the data seems to suggest that the AstraZeneca, especially on the big important outcome measures, seems to be just as effective. Um, so, so as somebody from across the seas who's sort of watching it, um, it's just sort of, it. there's a cloud there. And the fact that there's a cloud over that and there's no clouds over the other ones, you know, it makes the, makes the decision kind of easy, I guess, in a, in a lazy man's perspective. I mean, that it's, it's kind of fascinating to hear you say that because obviously, you know, we can caveat that with the fact that, you know, you're a pharmaceutical journalist, so you're not, you're not in this situation, an atypical citizen. But I think, you know, what you've just said, you know, just kind of speaks to, um, I guess maybe the potential, um, you know, detriment of of perception around this vaccine, which will have have occurred this week as a result of what's happened. Um, you know, my kind of issue is is that I don't think the the NIAID's decision to go public with that uh, press release which was described by lots of regulatory experts as kind of an unprecedented move, you know, in, in the way that it was released kind of in, in the middle of the night. Um, you know, that decision at the moment, at least, hasn't been scrutinised as much as AstraZeneca has been scrutinised for allegedly, you know, uh, uh, you know, releasing maybe different data than you know than, than they should have done according to these kind of these concerns um and and i, I i'm just not sure that it's kind of, you know i'm not sure there's kind of any winners in this scenario to be honest um you know it feels like um it feels like you know the public and sort of media you know fueled debate over the phase three data in the last few days is going to sort of potentially further strengthen you know any kind of hesitancy um towards the use of this vaccine and i think i think the point that you also make which is you know really important on a kind of global basis is the fact that yeah you know us citizens are not going to be impacted by you know this potentially kind of ill-informed move by you know part of the sort of the the kind of the us regulatory sort of system it's going to be people in countries who don't have access or don't have a choice to different vaccines who may ha now be hesitant to, um, to to use the AstraZeneca one. That, that's where the knock-on effect is going to be. Um, and, and, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really dangerous thing. And obviously it, it, it's happened against this kind of backdrop as well of, of what's happened in Europe. Um, where where debate around the vaccine has become incredibly um, political, I would argue. Um, you did mention there, obviously, there's, there was the kind of the safety issue with the, with the blood clots. I mean, that was something we spoke about at length last week. Um, that's something that's been raised, but, I, you know, the, the European Medicines Agency and, um, you know, various regulators in different European countries are now saying that the, you know, the, the bit of, of using the vaccine far outweighs the risk because these are potentially linked to the vaccine have occurred in such a small number of people um so yeah i mean i think obviously we are going to um 
we are going to get the full data um, when AstraZeneca hopefully files for emergency um, use authorization in the US. Once it's in the hands of the FDA, it will then, uh, you know, a few weeks later be made public, um, probably before an adcom takes place. And we will get a real kind of insight into, you know, maybe some of these issues that have been raised about the data. I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting if we're if we're sort of speculating um you know AstraZeneca now is kind of really trying to caveat you know uh the data that, that it's provided in its latest update they say that there's 14 possible or probable cases of COVID-19 that are still to be adjudicated and obviously whether they are attributed to the vaccine arm or the placebo arm that could then sort of shift the top line efficacy rate again, but I've seen someone's done some quick analysis of it. And even if you attribute all those cases to the vaccine arm, it's not going to bring the efficacy down that much further. So quite why such an issue has been raised this week, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm sure um, we will find out more once, um, you know, assuming AstraZeneca files uh, for US approval, and we get those um, those data in full when the FDA makes them public. I mean, I think I think the last thing I would say on, on my part as a, as a personal opinion is, you know, six months ago, uh, before we had any data for any of the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, we were, you know, experts were hopeful that we might have one vaccine that had kind of 50% efficacy. You know, the thing we kept reading about was, if we get a vaccine or we get vaccines that are kind of similar to the flu vaccine, that will be an amazing achievement. And actually, you know, 12, sort of virtually 12 months on from vaccine development starting, we've got, you know, four, five, if you include Novavax, you know, they've had some preliminary phase three data, which looks really impressive as well. You know, we've got five vaccines that have, you know, on the face of it, massively exceeded expectations. And, if you look at the real world data, whether that's from, you know, the UK, there's some amazing real world data coming out of Israel for the Pfizer vaccine. You know, they clearly show that they are, um, you know, the vaccines that offer offer us um, a route out of the pandemic and a route towards, you know, a real sense of normality. So I, I think that's the context that we've personally, I think we've got to kind of keep all of these debates kind of um, you know um within essentially um no disagreement (laughs) um moving on to um huntington's disease michael i know this is something that you've um you've been looking into this week um roche and its partner ionis announced that they've discontinued dosing um, of their investigational treatment, Tom Inerson, um, in a phase three study. Um, this was like, you know, I write about Roche a lot, and this was um, this was a product that people had high hopes for. So do we kind of know, you know, why the, the, the phase three um, study has been halted? Is it a, a safety issue, more of an efficacy issue? Yeah, so they they weren't clear uh, in the press release. They were a little 
a little quiet about it. They basically just said the, the risk benefit. I think people read into the fact that no new safety issues had emerged as you know, analysts basically took that to mean <clears throat> that <clears throat> the efficacy wasn't up to up to snuff, basically. Um, but you have to keep that in mind that this this is an agent that, that does come with, with some side effects. So, um, you know, whether it was just safety or just efficacy, we can't really say at this point, it might have been a combination of the two. Um, but if you look at this program, you know, it, it was one of the, it was one of the ones that, that you know, it was looked at as a, you know, high risk, but also very high reward. I think some people had um, sales projections of multi, multiple billions for, for this drug if it worked out. Um, and it was, you know, it was seen as um, one of this newer um, generation of, of Huntington's pro disease agents that, you know, really was going after what people have sort of identified as the problem. So there's this mutant Huntington protein that basically builds up in the brain um, and, and is believed to be at the, the heart of all of the, uh, you know, the pathogenesis, the, the neurodegeneration and everything. And so this is a, this is an Anasense candidate. It was originally discovered by Ionis in partnership with Roche. So, you know, it, it was, there was really high expectations for this because it seemingly goes really at the heart of the problem and getting at this, um, getting at this aberrant protein. So they showed some phase two data suggesting that it it's quite effective in knocking down the mutant Huntington, I think by 40 to 60%, which, you know, people expected to be a clinically meaningful amount. So that's where the expectations for this program really started to, to grow. And then this phase three data sort of came out of, well, the phase three discontinuation came out of nowhere. Um, it was the data wasn't supposed to be ready until next year. So I, th I don't think people were really ready for this. It, it really raises a lot of questions um, because, you know, this was this this mutant Huntington protein is really thought to be important. So the fact that clearly is hitting it and not having effect on the disease is it raises questions for, for other ones going after this same disease or same pr uh, protein. Um, and there are other ones. One from Wave Life Science uh, is in phase, let's see, I think it's in phase two testing, um, maybe phase three testing. So that's the one that everybody's watching now, because there is reason to think that maybe this this Roche and um, Ionis program wasn't the perfect uh, candidate, because it, it it is known to hit both the mutant protein and I think a little bit on the wild type side as well. So this this one from Wave is believed to just hit the the mutant and hopefully that will that will do the trick. Uh, I guess we'll see though. It's clearly a a, a big blow to to Roche, especially to Ionis, and perhaps to the field, depending on, on what happens with, with Wave. So it's it's something to watch. It's definitely not good news though. Disappointing. Okay. Well let's hope for Let's hope for positive data um, when when Wave, um, you know, reads out. Maybe as you kind of hinted, a bit more selectivity might be might be key to success there. Um, just wanted to sort of round out our our conversation this week with um, highlighting a couple of sort of immunotherapy firsts. Uh, you know, regular listeners will have probably heard us sort of speaking about um, 
you know the potential of moving um you know cancer immunotherapies like the the pd1 and the pdl1 inhibitors into earlier stage disease um you know at the moment they're primarily um you know used in advanced or metastatic um tumors and we've also i'm sure in the past touched upon the idea of potentially um there potentially being clinical success with other checkpoint inhibitors that aren't pd1 inhibitors or in the case of uh, bristol myers gervoy a ctla4 inhibitor so it it was kind of interesting this week you know um i think it was on monday that rush announced that their their phase three study um evaluating to centric in adjuvant um non-small cell lung cancer has hit its primary endpoint that primary endpoint is disease-free survival. Um, and then we heard today, actually, that um, BMS has announced that um, they had positive data um, combining um, Obdivo, which is its PD-1 inhibitor, with um, an anti-LAG3 antibody, which they're developing called uh, Relatlimab. Uh, Relat um, and that was in previously untreated um, metastatic or unresectable melanoma. Um, uh, that was uh, improving progression-free survival uh, using that combination versus Obdivo alone. So, I mean, we haven't got the details, Michael, but it, it's kind of good to see progress on both these fronts, I guess. Yeah, you know, these are the two, the two big next steps, really, with, with PD-1, as you said, basically, you know, going earlier and trying to find something that works in combination with it. And so there's sort of been perhaps steps forward on both fronts, I would say. Um, but as you um, sort of touched on, it's these are just tentative steps. We, we haven't seen the data. We don't know how effective they are. So, you know, we don't know if really they're going to be, because, you know, when you take a drug like a PD-1 inhibitor, and let's focus on, say, the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting here, if you're going to use a drug like that in that setting, it's going to have to be a lot, it, the safety bar is a lot higher for these patients because these are patients who you're looking for, you know, curative results where um, the surgery and, and the drugs will, will cure them of the cancer. So, you know, you can't really have serious side effects here. Um, and the disease-free survival, if it's just like minimal, um, you know, that's another reason if you're taking on this extra safety issues, it, it might not be it might not be worth it. You know, we just got to see what happens when, when the data are, are unveiled. Uh, so that'll be interesting. I know the on the other side, the same thing is true with when you're adding another, this lag three antibody onto PD-1. You know, if you're adding something on, you're, you've got to expect you're going to have some extra side effects. And, you know, whether the st statistical significance will be translated into clinical meaningfulness. And I think they I think I noticed that Bristol Myers didn't actually use that terminology in in their press release um, about the the combination. You know, if that's not there, if it's not clinically meaningful, then you know how big of a step forward really is this? I guess you know it remains to be seen. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I think it's you know Obdivo um, and Yervoy as well. I mean, is a is a is a pretty um, is a pretty well used uh, combination treatment for for melanoma, I believe. Um, obviously, this study was comparing, you know, the LAG three and, and Obdivo to Obdivo alone. But uh, I think that that's probably the clinical significance that you're kind of, um, you know, the bar you're kind of speaking of. Really, is that actually there is a combination that works quite well. 
I mean, I'm sure we've spoken about this on previous sort of podcasts as well. And and I, and I apologise because I haven't got it in front of me. I don't know if the if the study of tocentric in in adjuvant um, non small cell lung cancer is kind of is going to read out to us a, a sort of an overall survival benefit. But I'm sure I read an analyst note this week that sort of said you know they they'd surveyed oncologists and you know oncologists wouldn't you know the vast majority wouldn't be prepared to prescribe a, a PD one in that setting based on on a disease-free survival endpoint. And I, I think it's that idea of, you know, the, the design the design of these studies and the, the, the kind of sometimes the sort of surrogate endpoints that are being used. Um, we are gonna have to see, you know, significant magnitudes of benefit, aren't we potentially, to, to sway not only regulators, but to sway um, oncologists into using them in those settings. And I think what I've heard is that they basically restrict these use uh, to really high risk patients. You know, I think the definition of high risk will change. You know, it'll it'll differ based on the the physician and probably based on the patient. But um, yeah, you know, the there's going to need to be a serious uh, risk benefit advantage, and there's also going to be, um, you know, it's it's going to be restricted to certain high risk patients. Among the recent digital health headlines is news of Amazon starting to expand its healthcare service, Amazon Care, across the US. I spoke to Tina Tan, editor of our sister publication, First Word Health Tech, about the implications. So Tina, firstly, can you provide some details on this announcement by Amazon? Hi, Simon. So, well, this announcement was uh, officially made uh, last week, but there had already been rumors in the run-up to, to it. So basically what it is about is that Amazon, uh, Amazon's healthcare uh, service, which it calls Amazon Care, um, it was first launched uh, last year. And uh, basically what it provides is uh, a service whereby members to Amazon Care if they're feeling sick or if they need to see a doctor, they can be uh, put in touch with a doctor that is within this Amazon care uh, network. And uh, the visits could be virtual visits, like you know, a telehealth uh, consultation, or they can be in-person visits as well. So Amazon care was initially launched just to, uh, it was basically made available only to Amazon employees in Washington state. And now Amazon wants to uh, roll it out across all 50 states and um, not only to Amazon employees, but also to other companies who might want to take on, you know, Amazon care within their employer healthcare uh, programs. So that that's what it's about. And how well do you think Amazon will do as a healthcare provider? I mean, they've got an online pharmacy service already. They acquired PillPack a couple of years ago, and they obviously have the, the Amazon pharmacy brand, right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the thing is, telehealth is a massive, massive uh, opportunity. And um, the COVID-19 pandemic really opened up the market. You know, uh, we'd say that, prior to the pandemic, you know, the uptake of telehealth, telehealth has always been around, but the uptake of telehealth has been quite slow. And basically the pandemic acted like rocket fuel, you know, because of lockdown restrictions and uh, the telehealth market has, has just basically boomed and companies like Teladoc, 
which has been in this business area uh, for for a while have have seen um membership rates you know basically rocket and uh i don't know we're talking about 10-fold 20-fold increases in utilization rates as well so it's a really big opportunity and i can see why amazon is interested in it and you know it's already as you said they they've already got an online pharmacy service uh called which they rebranded as a uh, amazon uh, pharmacy i have to say you know healthcare is a very complex space and it isn't just a single transaction you know if someone's sick yeah it isn't like uh trying to just buy a doctor's uh uh, an appointment, you know, online, and then after that, they just leave it as, as that. It, there's, there's lots of like uh, management issues, you know, if there might be comorbidities or if there's like other sort of uh, areas that they need looking at. So I'd say it, it's quite early days yet. It's one thing to to have this online pharmacy where you can, you know, where medication, uh, well, ordering medication and getting it having it delivered to your doorstep is a sort of more straightforward transaction but providing a healthcare service is a lot more complex so you know we'll see just how well uh, amazon care does um for you know if it expands across the us and beyond amazon there's other tech companies like google who are growing their presence in healthcare I mean, for example, Google bought Fitbit last year and it has lots of projects that integrate technology like artificial intelligence into healthcare. So do we think that tech is a big threat in general? Well, this is my personal opinion. I, I feel that big tech shouldn't be seen as a threat by existing healthcare companies. I mean, I already said that healthcare is a really complex space. It's, it's, it's difficult to manage somebody who is, you know, who has a chronic disease, for example, like uh, diabetes. Yeah, sure, you know, Google's and Amazon's, they're taking steps to establish, you know, their own brand of uh, tools and solutions and services. But ultimately, they still need the know-how of like uh, healthcare companies, um, like Teladoc, et cetera, you know, to know how to navigate the healthcare space. So I think, you know, tech can definitely help by, you know, by bringing in their, their sort of like a know-how in terms of uh, digital solutions, uh, providing that infrastructure, the digital infrastructure to try and streamline the way healthcare is delivered um, and providing, you know, new solutions to enable sort of a virtual and connected care. But I think they, they will likely, you know, I feel that um, if big tech wants to really have a strong foothold in healthcare, they'll have to do that in partnership with existing pharma, medtech, and like um, health services players. 